Greetings this morning in our risen Lord and Savior. I thought too of those men at Emmaus, Myron, and uh, of course that's what we've said. We often would have loved to be in that Bible study, but we do have the word I think there was one reason why they were sad. They actually say it. I'm saying maybe several reasons, but there's one general reason. We thought this was the Messiah that was going to come and rescue Israel. And he didn't. And we're sad. A misunderstanding of God's will and plan. And then when it doesn't work out, then we're devastated. If you're a Christian this morning, what did you think the Christian life would be? Did you think it was a bed of roses? Did you think that once you became a Christian, all your troubles would go away? Did you think all your relationships would go well? And it didn't. The Lord Jesus did not promise all of that. It did do something for us. So yes, I was blessed this morning by the devotional. Um, I'd like to uh, spend time on one theme in the resurrection this morning. Uh, the resurrection is so huge. The uh, the whole atonement, the whole crucifixion, the death, burial, and resurrection, and everything is huge. We could talk. We could have messages for a week. But um, I would like to spend a little bit some time this morning on one aspect. And it's the aspect of victory. Victory out of battle. I just thought I'd like to read a few song, a few words of this first song here that we, one song that we sang. The strife is over. The battle is won. The victory, the battle is done, sorry. The victory of life is won. <laughs> there was a battle. And when it was over, victory was accomplished. And the song of triumph has begun. That is us, for us this morning. Why don't we just stand for a word of prayer before we begin, if you can, and let us just seek the Lord for some direction. Lord Jesus, as we stand before you, we honor you and worship you. You are our risen Lord, having, having conquered the enemy, death, and the devil, and sin. And Lord, today you are at the Father's right hand, and someday you will come back again. That is what your word says, and that is what we believe. Lord, as we we study your word this morning, as we look at the battle that you went through, I pray, Lord, you would give me clearness of heart and mouth. And each one of us here, clearness of understanding hearts, that we may see clearly. And if there is any of us, Lord, who may be in sadness, Lord, that uh, clarity would come and that we could be filled with joy and that we could worship you and walk forward with the song of triumph, a life of triumph. So, Lord, we ask you to be here this morning and uh, guide us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. May be seated. You know, this is Resurrection Day, and we heard a little bit about those women who went early on that first day of the week morning. They were going to go to the tomb where Jesus had been put into several days before. 
these women, I said three women, but there was actually these three named women and a few others, so I'm not sure how many they were. But they were on their way to the tomb. But as they were going there, they were talking to each other. And they had a problem. Who is going to roll this stone away was their problem. It was too large for them to move. And yet it needed to be moved if they were going to go there. They were going to there with spices to anoint his body. They had a had an agenda. They had a plan. And they went forward with their plan, but they didn't know how they were going to accomplish their plan. So it was a major problem. I just like to ask the question, did you ever have a problem that was too great for you to handle? And even as you were walking towards toward it, you still didn't know what you were going to do. That's where they were at. And apparently they didn't know that it was guarded with soldiers. If you look in the scripture, I think it was the next day that they put the guard there and sealed it, if I'm correct. So they probably weren't aware that the soldiers were there. They were just some grieving women who loved Jesus. But when they got to the tomb, as they were approaching it, they saw that the stone was rolled away. That was the first surprise they had that morning. It wasn't the last one and it wasn't the biggest one. But it was rolled away. So they just continue on. They thought, well, we're going to continue with our agenda. And then they were really surprised. Instead of the body of Jesus in that tomb, they found a man, two men, in shining clothing, and they had these memorable words. Why seek ye the living among the dead? Those are profound words. Why seek ye the living among the dead? And this is what Doug read this morning. He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was yet in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified. And the third day rise again. And they remembered his words. Wow, what a revelation. There was this man, they had seen him brutally whipped and mercilessly nailed on that post. They had seen him agonizing for six hours. And they had seen this man, Jesus, had died. He died right in front of them. They had seen him die and they had seen him dead. And they had seen him buried. And now they're told he's not dead. He's alive. An angel told them. That's a little bit of what happened that resurrection morning. That first, first day of the week. That first, first day of the week. That day was so life-changing that the early disciples began to commemorate it every week. The first day of the week became the Lord's Day. The the first day of the week, our Savior arose, victorious over death and Satan. Jesus rose to full victory. This morning, the title is Christ is Victor. And for a verse to contemplate this morning, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. First Corinthians chapter two verses seven and eight. Breaking in here with Paul talking to the Corinthians. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world unto our glory, 
which none of the princes of this world knew, for had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. None of the princes of this world knew it. If, if they would have known it, they would not have crucified Jesus. There is a mystery here. There was something hidden. Something not evident. Whoever these princes of this world were, they didn't know it. They acted out of the perspective that they had, and they did something out of that perspective. They crucified the Lord of glory. They did it willfully. They did it purposefully. They did it with zeal and hatred. And they had a goal. And they accomplished their goal. They killed Jesus. But there was something they did not know. Because Paul says, if they would have known it, what if they would have known what they did not know, they would not have done this thing. Why not? What is this mystery? This knowledge that they didn't have that would have changed their actions so much. What did the princes of this world not know that caused them to regret crucifying the Lord? And that's what we want to look at this morning. Primarily. Well, first we need to ask who were the princes of this world? Who were those princes? Commentators go down three ways. There are three answers, possible answers at least, that we have of that question. Who are these princes? And obviously I have chosen one of those three, but we'll go through all three as a, as a Bible study. And there is scripture for all three, by the way. You can turn to Acts chapter 3 for the first one of who these princes are. Acts chapter 3, verse 13. And here is Peter. He is preaching to Jews. After Pentecost, he's preaching to a crowd of mostly Jews. And he says to them, the God of Abraham and of Isaac, and of Jacob, the God of our fathers, hath glorified his son Jesus, whom ye delivered up, and denied him in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But ye denied the Holy One and just, and desired a murderer to be granted unto you, and killed the Prince of Life, whom God hath raised from the dead, whereof we are witnesses." Here. And then down at verse 17 is the verse. And now, brethren, I wot that through ignorance ye did it, as also did your rulers. I know what means in old English words means I know that through ignorance you did this. The rulers here were the Jewish religious leaders. Sometimes we think that they did what they did with their eyes wide open. They knew this man was from God. They knew that. But it didn't fit their program, so it didn't matter even what God thought. They were going to get rid of this man and keep on with their program. That's sometimes what we think. It's a little bit debatable. But right here it says that they did it in ignorance. Peter said, you did it in ignorance. You did it, and you're guilty of doing it. But I know you did it in ignorance. Now repent. That's what Peter told them. So the princes of this world could be the Jewish leaders. The other group, or possibility rather, could be the Romans. And you can turn to Luke chapter 23 for this. Going to the crucifixion. 
Luke 23, verses 33 and 34. And when they were come to the place, which is called Calvary, there they crucified him and the malefactors, one on the right hand and the other on the left. That was the Roman soldiers who did that. Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they parted his raiment and cast lots. Right in context here, it's the Roman soldiers that are doing this. And Jesus said, they know not what they're doing. Now, he could still be referring to the Jews when he said that. But right in context, it's the Romans. And then there is a third possibility. And that's the one that I will take this morning. And that is that the princes of this world could be the devil and his angels. Ephesians talks about how we all used to walk according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. And Ephesians 6.12 says, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, not against people, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. So clearly this is talking about something other than men, at least behind them. And then you can turn to chapter 12 of John, chapter 12, verses 30 to 32. And we'll read a few verses there. And Jesus answered and said, This voice came not because of me, but for your sakes. Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall shall the prince of this world be cast out. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. This verse actually encapsulates the question that I raised in 1 Corinthians there about which none of the princes of this world knew. If they would have known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Here Jesus says he didn't do it in ignorance. Maybe the princes of this world were not ignorant. They knew what they were doing. But the thought is they didn't know the consequence of what would happen of their actions. So rather than ignorance, they were just not aware of the consequences. What would happen after the consequence, after the crucifixion? If they would have known what would have happened after they killed the Lord of glory, what happened afterwards, they would not have done it. And Jesus gave indication of that consequence is when he said, if I be lifted up on the cross, I will draw all men unto me. Well, that's what the devil wanted, right? He wanted all men drawn to Jesus? No. That's not what the devil wanted. Did you ever do something to accomplish a purpose that you had in mind, only to regret you did it because of the result, because of the consequences of your action. Myron gave an example a few weeks ago of throwing hot water on a frosty windshield. You had a, you had a goal in mind. The intent was to clear the windshield so you can drive the car. The consequence was a completely shattered windshield that made the car inoperable. If you would have known the consequences of your action before you did it, you wouldn't have done it. That's the thought here. Enter the devil. The consequences or the result of crucifying the Lord Jesus. The devil 
missed it. He didn't get it. Apparently he thought, if I kill this enemy, I'll be rid of him. I tried to kill him when he was a baby through wicked King Herod. I tried to tempt him to follow me. I tried to get the religious people stirred up against him and trick him. Nothing is working. But now I have one of his disciples on my side. The Jewish leaders are on my side. The Romans will do it. I'm going to kill him. And then we will be rid of him. But he didn't know what would happen afterwards. He didn't know that the crucifixion and death of Jesus was the avenue in which Jesus would actually take the power of the devil away from him and start his own kingdom. He didn't know that. Or that it would culminate eventually in Jesus destroying every trace of the devil's work. Every trace of the devil's work is going to be destroyed someday. And it started here on the cross. And he didn't know it. None of the princes of this world knew it. For had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So of the three possibilities of who those rulers are, I take the last one. I talked to John D. Martin last evening. He agrees with me. He actually said he thinks that's why the resurrection was so obscure in the Old Testament. Because the devil, God did not want the devil to understand it so that the devil would do it. Now, I don't know. That's his words, not mine. Now, clearly the resurrection was in the Old Testament because Jesus could teach from the Old Testament what he was going to happen to him. So it was there, but it was it was obscure. The devil didn't know it, and it was a total surprise for him. This morning, we want to unpack some of what Jesus did that the devil so much regretted afterwards. And this is an enormous subject. It's more than I can give. There are going to be gaps in my exposition of God's words. I'm not, I don't, I don't grasp everything. It's bigger than me. And there'll be only a slice of Jesus' work. But I think we need to understand what Jesus did because we cannot live in faith of the victory if we don't know what it is. We will be sad on the way to uh, Emmaus if we don't know what the Lord Jesus Christ did. God accomplished many things by having his son come, incarnate, and die on the cross. He accomplished a lot of things. I'm going to go through a list of things that he did. Through Christ coming, God revealed to us who he is. He's the image of the Father. Number two, he reconciled all things, including people, to himself. Number three, he forgave our sins. Number four, he healed us from our sin-deceased nature. Number five, he gave us his spirit and empowered us to live in relationship with him And number six, he gave us teaching an example of what it looks like when we live in his kingdom. He did that here. Those are all facets of God's work, of Christ's work. But there is one more facet. I think it is a foundational facet. One that really did the devil in. The one probably he hated the most. It's a foundational thing that Christ came to accomplish, and that was defeat defeat the devil and his demons. His power has been stripped. So we're going to look at that this morning, that slice of what Jesus came to do this morning. 
We were all born with a disposition to sin. And then we sin. We violate God's law and then we are guilty before God. And God clearly says the wages of sin is death. Death, not just dying, but eternal death, eternal separation from God. And he tells us he has a place called hell prepared for the devil and his angels and whoever is on the devil's kingdom. And we are all naturally and normally on the wrong side. That's the state where we're born in. For all has sinned and come short of the glory of God. So now what? Well, we need atonement, don't we? We need at one with God. God has a case against us, and we need to be at one with him. What needs to happen so that we can be accepted by God? When we hear of atonement today, we often think of it in legal terms. Legal terms. The setting is a courtroom. God is the judge in this courtroom. We are the defendant, the accused one. We have been indicted on numerous charges, and the evidence is brought forth, and it's very clear that we are guilty. This is this courtroom setting. It is evident we have broken the law majorly, and the sentence for breaking this law is death, the death sentence. So we are before the judge, and we are guilty. And the judge is about ready to bring down his gavel. And then there's a commotion in the courtroom. Another man comes up. To the judge, and he presents himself to the judge as a substitute for you, for me. And the law is searched, and it is found that that is, that it can be done. A substitute can be granted in the place of a condemned criminal. And so that day, you walk out of the courtroom a free man. Your record has been swiped clean. The charges have been dropped against you. They've been transferred to someone else. That person took your place and you go free. The judge no longer has a case against you. You could come the next day in that courtroom, stand right in front of that judge, and there's nothing he can has against you because your record is clean. That is one way of the atonement. There is also another possible scenario, and I actually think that I don't think one scenario completely uh, describes this whole enormous thing that even is a, some of it's still a mystery to me. But I'm going to speak about the other scenario this morning. Instead of a courtroom, we have a battlefield. We sang songs this morning about battle, about conquest, and about victory. You do not have victory unless you have a battle, or it's not a victory. So, here we have a battlefield. It is cosmic spiritual warfare. It's war for the control of this earth, and specifically for the people of this earth. War. Why is there war on this earth? God made a perfect world. Not just a perfect people. He made a perfect world. Everything was perfect until Satan came along and he persuaded those people who were in charge of this perfect world to give their allegiance to him. Those creatures, Adam and Eve, They forsook their creator God and gave allegiance to God's enemy, the devil. And everything changes. Like a dropped egg. All the king's horses and all the king's men cannot put Humpty Dumpty 
together again. You can't do it. Once that egg is dropped, it is history. And that's what happened in the fall. Once they gave their allegiance to Satan, everything changed. It was no longer possible to go back to Eden. It was done. Adam's sin caused, and, and now, so it's saying, now there are two active spirits in the world, and mankind has given his allegiance to Satan. Adam's sin has caused that every descendant of his would be born spiritually dead. God would be, God would not be reigning naturally in humankind, in human hearts, but rather self and sin and Satan will naturally rule in each heart because of the fall. God tells us that and we, we observe it every day. Humanity had been sold into Satan's kingdom by one sin. Now the consequences of what happened there can never be reversed, right? Well, that's what the topic is this morning is about. Here comes Jesus as God in human flesh. He came as a real man with real passions and real feelings. He was a full 100% man in his, his makeup. But he was not one of Adam's descendants. So he was not naturally predisposed to evil, he was like the original Adam in that he had communion, unbroken communion with God. In fact, the Bible says in Romans 5, he was the second Adam. He was the second Adam before Adam had sinned. It seemed like the devil didn't like it from the beginning. It seemed like he smelled the rat. And so he just tried to destroy Christ as a baby there in Herod. But he failed. The next time we see the devil is when we see him in the wilderness temptation with Jesus. We're all, I think we're all familiar with that temptation, so I won't read it. So I will summarize it. Satan goes all out to get Jesus to do what Adam did. What did Adam do? Ignore God and agree with Satan. It was an all-out frontal attack. Satan used every possible arsenal in his Ammunition that he had. It was a blitz. It was shock and awe. It was the, what do you call it? The nuclear option. It was everything at the Lord Jesus that he had at his disposal. It was an onslaught on Jesus in a time when he was weakened by fasting. It was cosmic war. And Jesus won that battle. But he hadn't yet won the war. Because it says the devil left him defeated, to be sure. But he just departed from him for a season. He left him until he had the next opportunity to get at him. And those opportunities came. Jesus grew tired and weary. People put expectations on Jesus that he couldn't humanly meet. The disciples must have been a huge source of temptation to him. In fact, he's told Peter one time, You are a temptation to me. Get behind me, Satan. Jesus was misunderstood and he was misrepresented. In fact, Hebrews 4.15 says about Jesus, 
He was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. This Jesus, this God in a real human body, had to prove that he was capable of walking through all the temptations and weaknesses of humanity and prove that he could do it and not sin. So you had to run the the gauntlet, so to speak. In school, we did that. I don't know if you ever did that in school. I don't remember the... um, what the circumstances was anymore. All I remember in school, one person, or maybe sometimes several people, got it. If you didn't do something or you did something, whatever it was, the children would line up on two rows. Two rows of children, and a person would run in the middle, and as he would run by, you'd whack him. you run the gunlet. I don't know, I don't remember what we did wrong anymore. I don't, re- don't recommend that you do that, children. But it's actually a military discipline from years ago. Where if someone needed to be disciplined, they would line the soldiers up in two lines. And then they would have actually somebody go ahead so that, uh, with a pointed spear or something so that the person that had to go through it couldn't run. He just had to walk slowly. And then the soldiers would do whatever they wanted with him. And sometimes they actually did it to kill him. Jesus walked the gauntlet of temptation. That's what he did. Every onslaught that could possibly come against him did. All humanity's temptations and oppressions and afflictions had to be borne by him. And it needed to, to prove his capabilities. Satan bruised the Messiah, like was foretold there in Genesis. Satan bruised him. Satan did. Of course, that was not the end. We know the other part, don't we? The head was crushed. And the father was pleased because he saw his son pass the test with flying colors. The son was able to die an unrighteous death and not even sin with his mouth. In fact, he prayed, Father, forgive them. He forgave them who unrighteously killed him. Did he pass the test? He sure did. Jesus had won battle after battle after battle. It must have frustrated Satan. He couldn't get this one. He had to get away. He had to get rid of him, and he found the way he thought. John Chapter 13 and verse 2, I'll read it. And supper being ended, the devil, having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. The devil was behind the crucifixion of Christ. He wanted him killed. No doubt. Exactly what he wanted, I'm not completely sure. I thought he just probably thought he just eliminate him. Maybe he thought, if I can't get him down in battle from the front, we'll just get rid of him. At any rate, he goes ahead with his plan, and lo and behold, he succeeds. To the surprise of Judas, to the surprise of his disciples, Almost everybody's surprised he succeeds. One evening, Jesus is partaking the Passover with his disciples. The next evening, he's in a grave. Just like that. This powerful preacher, this miracle worker, this fearless man is dead. For real dead. What a shock. And it looks like Jesus lost and the devil won.
That's what it looks like. Every indication is that's what it looks like. The devil and his demons, they were probably ecstatic. I don't know if you can imagine um, demonic glee. I, I don't know if you can imagine that, but I imagine that's what was going on. But around comes Sunday morning. And the mourning women, those mourning, not mourning, mourning women come to the grave to pay their respects and they are asked, why seek ye the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. And things were never the same after that. Why? Because Jesus did not lose. He really won. And this time, he did not just win the battle. He won the war. The second Adam won back what the first Adam had lost. The devil is now toast. He is permanently, forever, without one possibility of getting at his enemy anymore. He has lost the battle, and he knows it. He has no longer any hope of another battle to take back the control of this world. And I think that is why, if he would have known the consequences of killing the Lord Jesus, he would not have done it. But it was hidden from him. Instead of winning the war, he permanently lost the war. Because Jesus did not sin. And he went the whole way to his death that way. Now in his resurrection body, there is no possibility of him sinning. There's no possibility of him being tempted by the devil. And the devil lost. And the Lord Jesus is now rightful owner Lord, ruler of the whole creation, because he won the cosmic war. He won it in that battle. He was the only one, the only one who could do it. Let's turn to Revelation chapter 5 for some verses. See what the Lord Jesus did. We'll read the first five verses. And I saw on the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within and on the backside sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and loose the seals thereof? And no man in heaven nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. And I wept much, because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. And one of the elders said unto me, Weep not, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. Hath prevailed. Jesus has prevailed. Now you looked at that word prevailed in other translations. The English standard version says he has conquered. The New Living Translation says he has gotten the victory. All those things of winning a battle, winning a war. He prevailed. There was a war and Jesus won. He got the victory. Over whom? Well, turn to Luke chapter 11, verses 21 and 22. We already know who, who he did, but let's just look a little more detail here. Luke chapter 1, 21 and 22. 
And, of course, this is in a disagreement about who was casting out devils and how they were doing it. Jesus said, And when a, when a strong man, armed, keepeth his palace, his goods are in peace. But when a stronger than he shall come upon him and overcome him, he taketh from him all his armor, wherein he trusted, and divideth his spoils. Now the strong man, and this is the devil. The people, people rather, including you and me, are his goods. And we are safe in his care. Now isn't that for a variation? Safe in the arms of the devil. That's what the verse says. <laughs> You're safe in his care. We are safe in the arms of the devil. He's armed. He's going to keep. But, and aren't you glad for buts? But when a stronger than he shall come and overcome him. That word overcome, it's the same word as prevail there in Revelation. Overcome him. The Lion of Judah hath prevailed, hath overcome him. And what did he do? It says he takes from him his armor. No, it does not say that. It says he takes from him all his armor. And that's correct. It is totally taking away his armor. The whole armor of the devil he takes away. And then he takes away what the devil was guarding, which is people. He gives liberation to those who are bound by the devil. Another well-known verse that describes this deliverance, of course, is in Isaiah, Isaiah 61. And this was uh, quoted, Jesus quoted this when he started his ministry, but I'll, I'll read it, Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, and I'll, I'll just read the part that Jesus quoted, I don't know, in one of the Gospels, I don't know where, where he left the last part of verse 2 out. So I'll read that part. He says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. The Lord Jesus came to give liberty and freedom and release, like the year of Jubilee in Israel. When the year of Jubilee comes around, all debts are canceled, all the Israelite slaves are freed, everybody can go home to their own house, their own land, their own family. It's the year of Jubilee. Well, Jesus did that from the devil. When he kept humanity bound, he opened, proclaimed liberty to those captives. He came and he won the war. He took the armor of the devil away and now he proclaims Liberty. He came and took the devil's kingdom and proclaimed the acceptable year of the Lord. This is liberation. If you recall, liberation theology. I don't know if um, there's something like that. I just stated it out. But I'm going to diverge a little bit now because I think it's a teachable moment. What is liberation not? Jesus proclaimed liberty. Out of this verse of Isaiah, and many others like it, is where a major movement called a social gospel comes out of. And with it comes a slogan that is right. What would Jesus do? That is a, is a slogan 
of the social gospel. It's not a wrong statement, by the way. But I'd like to talk a little bit about some wrong ideas of liberation, at least wrongly emphasized, let's say it that way. What would Jesus do? And the challenge is then presented to do like he did, at least their perception of what he championed. Social gospel gained strength in the progressive wing of the Protestant church in the last part of the uh, 1800s and early 1900s is when it was really in its strength. Those who appeared to the social gospel sought to apply Christian ethics to social problems such as poverty, slums, poor nutrition and education, alcoholism, crime, and war. They sought to find answers to the human condition and to relieve suffering. These things were emphasized while the doctrine of sin, salvation, heaven, and hell, and the future kingdom of God were downplayed. An element of this gospel was strong during the civil rights movement, a movement of uh, racial liberation. Actually, John uh, Luther, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. was actually a Baptist preacher. <laughs> it was very much immersed in liberal Christian belief system. And the modern socialist movement of the liberal West led uh, the most common spokesman is Bernie Sanders today, a socialist movement, continues the social gospel objectives. But the modern movement has been, in those areas, has almost been completely divorced from the gospel and the Bible. It's become a social movement in its own right. Except, so when I said it has become divorced from the gospel and the Bible, the social gospel does still continue on in the progressive and liberal elements of the church and the emerging church. And its missional concept is largely social, heavily social, I should say. So the question is, does this verse that I read in Isaiah and others like it speak primarily about man's social condition or his spiritual condition? Did Jesus come to bring about a social deliverance? And we might ask the question, well, what did Jesus do? What did he do? Did he care about the poor? The sick? The weary and faint-hearted? Yes, he did. A bruised weed... He did not break, or a smoking flax he didn't quench. He touched the lepers. He ate with sinners. But was he a social activist, as so many in the social gospel make him to be? Well, let's ask the question, how many schools did he start? <laughs> how many refugee camps did he visit? How many soup kitchens did he run? Well, he did one for one day. He ran a soup kitchen for one day and he said, no more. Actually, he did it twice. But he refused to be a bread giver. Does that mean he or we didn't care about the poor? No, 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 no. The true evangelical faith Cannot lie sleeping. You know that song? The true evangelical faith. And that's right. But the liberation theology Jesus came to do was first and fundamentally deliverance from the power and prison of Satan. Mankind has enormous problems. There is suffering untold and of unimaginable levels to me. The poor you will always have with you, Jesus said. 
But the fundamental problem from which all the problems stem is spiritual. In control of the evil one. John says, 1 John, that the whole world lieth in wickedness. And English Standard Version says, the whole world lieth in the power of the evil one. The character of humanity will only get worse and worse with each generation. We see it happening all the time in history and in today's society. The corruption is like a dead possum on the road. The longer it's dead, the more it decays. And the longer the human race stays dead, the worse it gets corrupted. The only way to reverse corruption of a dead possum is to bring it back to life. And the only way to stop the corruption of sin and humanity is to bring humanity back to unite with God. And that be clear, this is not to say we do not care or sacrifice for human needs. One of the qualifiers that Peter gave to Paul when he it was agreed that Peter would stay with the Jews and Paul would go to the Gentiles was that you remember the poor. And Paul said, I am very eager to do that. But we don't see Paul then go on with the social gospel, do we? What was his burden? No, he saw the true need of man and he preached the liberation gospel that Jesus won deliverance from the devil. So a little bit of review for the message today. The question we explored is, what did the princes of this world not know that caused them to regret having killed the Lord of glory? And the answer is, the consequence of killing Jesus resulted in the permanent, decisive victory for Jesus and a permanent, decisive defeat for the devil. Jesus did that by fighting the devil on his own turf. At a tremendous cost to himself and winning. And the practical outworking of the Lord's victory is the establishment of his kingdom on the earth. All the people who believe in Jesus, who believe that Jesus liberated them from the enemy, and it did act on that belief, they can get out of the devil's clutches and they can walk free and follow the true victor, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what all who believe in Jesus can do. You know the devil has been defeated. The door, the prison door has been opened. You might still be in the prison But the door is open. Jesus opened that door. You might be safe in the arms of the devil. But his armor has been taken away. He has no guards there anymore. You can be free. The resurrection, which is victory over death, is the inauguration of Christ's kingdom. The first Adam disobeyed God and died. The last Adam died rather than disobey God. You know, we talked about it, how uh, Christ and uh, the next message I probably will have a, uh, a message after this that talks, well, what does that now mean for us? Because we can definitely look around and see what a, um, if Jesus won the battle completely and took the armor away from the devil, why is there so much still going on? And that is a real question. And I'm not going to answer that this morning. I wanted you to, us to see from the word of God the victory that Jesus won. 
But uh, this is one thought. Um, well, let's say it this way. Jesus did not need to get born again because he was the first Adam in communion with God. We need to be born again. We need to have that time when we actually come to God and begin that relationship with God. And we talk about Christ coming into us, living inside of us, and that is right. Now, I didn't look this up, but I, I found this writing. He says, being in Christ is used 20 times more than the fact of Christ being in us. Now, what does that all mean? Uh, it just means an emphasis is that, yes, Christ is in us, and that is right, and that's necessary and true. But we have the victory as we are in Christ. What he won, the victory that he won, when we're in Christ, we become partakers of that same victory. And that subtle difference of whether Christ is in us or us in Christ, there's a subtle difference in emphasis there that we do need to know. So as I think of this message, I can think of a lot of gaps. There's other aspects, some that I just brushed over, and probably some I missed completely, and maybe you can share with them now. But the main foundational truth I wanted to uh, communicate this morning is that Christ is the victor. An absolute and complete and final. And we participate, we join him in his victory when we are in him. And that's the message for the next time. So may God bless you.